Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... Manipulating the human structure like that with the ground might have negative implications. So you have an infatigable elastic element. They shut off an important part of the body's spring mechanism. It extends that lever arm, that effective leg of your body. We are in a phase now where we have to recalibrate what performances mean. Welcome to the Science of Sport. Uh, my name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I have Professor Ross Tucker, but not sitting with me today. He's in Japan at the moment and uh, talking to us live on Skype from where are you? I think Kyoto. You said, Ross. Yeah, Mike. How's it going? I'm I'm in Kyoto, taking a gap a gap week from uh, Tokyo's madness, and then I head back there for the semis at the weekend. I mean, the Rugby World Cup's been pretty exciting, but all, all of it going according to the form book to some extent, isn't it? Well, it is now. I'd say having Japan in the quarterfinal was amazing for the tournament and for the hosts. But I think now that we filtered out the, the top four, I think we have pretty much exactly as expected. In fact, I saw that it is the world's top four in the rankings. Yeah. So we are where we need it to be, and it'll be good at the weekend, I think, too. So for all of those of you following the, the uh, Rugby World Cup, um, obviously uh, Ross and I are from South Africa, so we're going to be supporting the box. I'm predicting an England-South England, uh, an England uh, South Africa final, but uh, we'll see how close we get to that. And by the time you listen to this, we'll know a little bit closer to the time whether we are going to be in that final or not. But anyway, we're not talking about rugby today. We're talking about athletics and particularly about a pod that we've been requested to do by a lot of our listeners and a lot of people on Twitter uh, tweeting us about this very subject. We have covered it to some extent, but we have promised you a very in-depth look at this uh, very controversial Nike Viper Fly shoe, which I think a lot of people, and we've seen records falling, of course, there was a lot of hype around the sub two hour that uh, Iliad Kipchoge ran a couple of weeks ago. And that really wasn't the start of the, the process. It was in fact the record run the day later, the women's record run at the Chicago Marathon the day later, which really sort of fired up this discussion around the shoe. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about it. There's been podcasts done by the podcasters about this. There's been a lot of discussion on uh, athletics and uh, and athletics forums and road running forums, but uh, we really wanted to like give you a real in depth view into as to why the shoe is so controversial, some of the tech involved, and we have got a special guest who we've asked to kind of send us a few voice notes on his experience of the shoe, and uh, we'll introduce him a bit later. But Ross, let's have a look talk about the shoe. It was it was initially called the Nike Vaporfly Four Percent, then it was the next Four Percent, then it was the Alpha Fly, which is the one that Kipchoge ran in, but. This, the story isn't just this year. It's It's been going for a couple of years already. It has. It's uh, four years, I guess, almost, that we've had some inkling of what is capable or what the shoe is capable of doing. And as you alluded to there, it was the Costco performance that I think rammed at home for a lot of people. The day before, obviously, we saw the sub two happen. But we know, and we discussed this, there was drafting, there was the perfect course, there were energy drinks, there were paces and so on. 
when Costco runs 2.14, I think people sit up and they say, wow, actually maybe something's going on here and maybe there's more to this than we initially anticipated there was. So that's why we're discussing it now. But as you say, it was four years ago that the concept of a 4% shoe came about. The lab study gave the shoe its name. So I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. But I think like you, I've read so many marketing claims by shoe companies (laughs) that my default is to dismiss this as in-house testing that serves a marketing purpose rather than any other functional purpose. Would you agree more or less with that? Yeah, I think that's always been the case. And I mean, a lot of brands have brought out different shoes and a lot of them to do with comfort. And there's always the idea of energy return, which is a lot of the marketing. And I I guess to some extent, those technologies do work to some extent. But I I think this is where the the next level of uh, energy return is is really what this Vaporfly has done, really, isn't it? Well, we know that now, but again, my, so when, when it was announced that they had the shoe and it was going to support the attempts to break the two-hour marathon, I remember thinking, all right, whatever, uh, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Then what happened was in 2016, a couple of results started to come in. Athletes who were what I would call mature marathon runners, in other words, they'd done a handful of marathons, they'd learned the event, they weren't young debutantes making their first or even second attempts at the distance suddenly started running pretty significant PBs. Um, and I remember I remember looking at going, well, the thing that's common is they're all sponsored by Nike and they're running in this new shoe. I wonder whether there might be something to this because a 4% claim is pretty big. We'll talk about other claims in, in, in the past when we explore how the shoe works, which were around 1%. So yeah. I remember it was in mid-2016 that I started to think actually – I, I want to see where this is going and I want to see where it's coming from mm. because at the same time, a patent comes out um, by Nike and, and these patents are all publicly available. And in this patent, they use language that to me is very provocative. They they describe a footwear sole structure that includes a spring plate. Also in this patent, they talk about energy recovery through the use of a carbon fiber spring plate. They say, and I'm literally reading from it as I as I speak to you here, by the time that the runner nears toe-off, substantial energy has been stored in the spring plate. And then further on, they also mention about how the plate bends and then returns energy. So this this thinking was out there in 2016 that you could add energy to the, to the system. And I was sensitized to that because 10 years ago, the Oscar Pistorius case um, put all of this stuff into the thinking as well. Mm-hmm. Because in his instance, he was running on these carbon fiber blades. And I remember reading up on the technology of those blades about how they were going to store energy and return it. And they had these concepts like active tibial progression, and you could increase the length of the leg. And at the time, I remember thinking it's a, it's a matter of time before a shoe company takes the, the technology of prosthetic limbs, carbon fiber, and turns it into a shoe that anyone can wear, not just a double amputee. So I think in 2016, I was looking at this and going, hmm, I wonder if we're getting there. And then, of course, the Olympics came, all the medals went to Vaporfly athletes. Yeah. All right, fine. That's not proof of anything. But then starts the evidence. And so we had a study funded by Nike, but it shows the 4%. This is where the name comes from. We then get a second study, not funded by Nike, showing 
a 4% improvement in running economy. There's a third study comes along, not funded by Nike. And I think we're at the point now where you can't dismiss that this shoe does reduce the cost of running. There is a physiological benefit to this shoe compared to others, and it's a large benefit and it's a consistent benefit. In other words, not a single study has yet found someone who gets worse wearing a Vaporfly shoe. That everyone gets better, and that's really significant. So what's interesting about that is that what you're saying is up until this time, and the, and the independent studies are obviously very critical here, is that lots of shoe brands have made claims about these things, but nobody's necessarily done all these independent studies. But because the shoe was such a dramatic change, that the independent studies do prove that there is a there is a I hate to say it's mechanical doping, but in a way it is. I mean, it's 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 using a technological uh, device to make you faster because you're still running at the same effort level. But when you say it actually actually adding to the performance, it's the same effort level, but just faster because of the shoe. Exactly, and and I wouldn't hesitate to use the word mechanical doping because the the effect is so large that it actually is that. Now, yeah. it, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not going to accuse the athletes running in it of, of cheating. That's a different thing. I hope people appreciate the difference. But this mechanical advantage is enormous. Yeah. So, for instance, um, a decade ago, Adidas made claims around a one percent improvement in running economy, and I remember seeing that study and. They tested their midsole technology and found that on average it was 1%. The runner uses 1% less oxygen in that shoe compared to in the, in the shoes at that time. Yeah. The thing is 1% is, is trivial Yeah. because the day-to-day -day variation in physiology is more than 1%. Yeah. So when you find a change, it's the same thing as people who weigh themselves every morning and then get excited because they're 610 grams lighter. It's, it's irrelevant yeah. because day to day, your, your body mass varies by more than that. So 1% doesn't mean anything. 4% means a lot. And so when you see a claim of 4%, fine, marketing. When you see a hint of performance benefits on the roads, then you see a study, then another study, then another study, and they're all replicating the same thing. At some point, you've got to say, you know what, we might not be able to pin down exactly how much Kipchoge or Koskai or Bekele is getting. Yeah. It might not be 4%, but it's not zero. So this shoe gives the user an advantage physiologically that translates into a performance advantage. And it's worth minutes to some athletes. It could be yeah. worth four to five minutes for some runners in yeah. the elite race. So what's it, I mean, I guess that the, at that level that Kipchoge is running at this, this percentage. Now you've talked about this in previous podcasts. Are we able to quantify when they're saying 4% or next percent or whatever that is, are we able to quantify, for instance, Kipchoge's marathon time in terms of what his saving would have been? In other words, how much slower would he have been if he hadn't got the shoe? Do we have any idea of what that number would be? We don't because we don't know what his running economy change is. So for new listeners, running economy is basically how much energy or oxygen you consume to run a given speed. It's the equivalent of a human, it's, sorry, it's the human equivalent of a car using six liters to travel a hundred kilometers or think of it as gallons per mile or whatever you want. Yeah. And yeah. what the shoe is claiming to do, and it's in the name 
is reduce the cost by 4%. Now, if, if a runner saves 4% oxygen slash energy, then they can go faster at the same energy con at the same energy cost, but it's not necessarily one-to-one. So there are subsequent studies and models that have been developed where a 4% energy saving is worth about a 2.7% performance benefit to an elite marathon runner. So it's okay. every one, so every 1% oxygen saving gives you about a 0.65, 0.7% performance benefit. Mm-hmm. Now, the, what that means, just to give some people context, if you add weight to someone's feet, yeah. the cost of running goes up. If I was to put little ankle weights around your feet and made you run, you would use more energy to run than without yeah. them. That's obvious, yeah? Yeah. It's been shown in lab studies that every 100 grams of mass that you add to the shoe increases the cost by about 1%. Yeah. So by the time you get to vapor fly levels where the, the cost benefit is 4%, it's basically the equivalent of a 400 gram shoe difference between two athletes. Okay. So what we're saying here is that an athlete wearing a Vaporfly is wearing a shoe that weighs, say, 100 grams. It, it doesn't. It's heavier than that, but for yeah. the sake of my concept, let's say their shoe weighs 100 grams. Everyone else in the race is wearing a shoe that weighs 500 grams. That's how big the difference here would be if the elite athlete is getting the full 4%. Yeah. Now, I don't know what Kipchoge is getting. Maybe Kipchoge gets 2%. If he does... That's worth a 1.3% performance benefit, which is one and a half to two minutes in the marathon. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what uh, Kenanisa Bekele is getting, and I don't know what Bridget Koskai is getting. But if Koskai is getting 3%, that's worth four to five minutes in the marathon. And it means that her 2 hour 14 world record in any other pair of shoes would be a 218 to a 219. Yeah. Now, if she did that, No one would say anything's unusual. It would look like an expected elite women's marathon. And so the difference might be 100% the shoe, and that's the problem. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to talk about the technology behind the shoe and all the biomechanical issues with with, with Ross and Jeff a bit later on. But I think even if you take out all the studies and you take out the the controversy about whether the shoe should be allowed, and and there's lots of calls for that as well, if you just look at the numbers, Ross, and and, and Bridget Koskar's performance in Chicago um, just two weeks ago from us doing this podcast, 2.14.04, smashed Paula Radcliffe's record. There's been all that listening of performances by Nike athletes over the last sort of 18 months to two years, which prove that even even if there's no proof of the shoe being better, the times prove that there is a legitimate jump in performance that is not just a natural evolution of performance. Absolutely. And that that woman's world record was untouchable. Yeah. Like when you look, I, was, I meant to do it ahead of this, but, but listeners can go, look at the all-time list on the marathon and look how many performances are within two, three minutes of the world record. And you'll find loads of them, right? Yeah. In other words, Kipchoge's world record is unbelievably good, but there are so many men who are within two to three minutes. Paula Radcliffe's record was... Was, was untouchable. No one was getting close to it. Caitanya ran 2.17 uh, in London, I think it was, a few years ago to, to get close to that. But no woman has looked even remotely 
like they were capable of breaking it. And then she didn't just break it, she destroyed it. And it was, again, the top five men's performances have all been run in the last few years, and they are all run in vapor flies. The, the shoe, I, I, I understand that people will have philosophical differences about whether it should or shouldn't be allowed. But at this point, if you, if you reject that the shoe is not helping and doesn't have a physiological and a performance benefit, you're, you're basically like the climate denialist of the running world, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is a good point. And I, and, I, and I think, I mean, you, Ross, you've often said this, and I, I think in a previous podcast you said when there was talk about the sub two-hour marathon, um, you, you said it would take a sort of a decade for that to happen. But at that stage, the, the talk about the shoe, wasn't, the shoe wasn't a factor back then. If you had a look at the science behind this, that that's the kind of timeline we're looking at. It's all been brought forward a bit now because of the shoe. Exactly. So we are in a phase now where we have to recalibrate what performances mean. Yeah. And the best analogy that I can think of for that is, is I mean, where you are sitting right now in Cape Town, huh? what's the temperature today? Uh, it's a pleasant 24 degrees Celsius. Right. So the fa in fact, perfect, because you, you labeled that as pleasant, because anyone listening to this will understand that 24 degrees Celsius is a pleasant temperature. Had you said it was 34 degrees Celsius, you would have called it hot. Had it been 44 degrees Celsius, you would have said it's unbearable. And if it was four degrees Celsius, you would have said cold. And my, my point here is that we, we understand what things mean because we've calibrated numbers to words, right? Yeah. What's, what's happened in the marathon is that a 204 used to be a world-class, sorry, 205 to 206 used to be a world-class marathon. Nowadays, it's 203 to 204. Yeah. Because we have to recalibrate what marathon performances mean. So what used to be fast is now good. What used to be world-class is now fast. And what used to be world record level is now only merely world-class. And so everything has shifted by two to three minutes. And I'm just looking at it now, you know, with just the number of performances in the last three or four years. And I, I reckon easily 80% of them are in the vapor fly. So in Chicago last weekend, 10, I think it was, US men went under 212 for the first time in history. And most of those are running in some form of experimental shoe. Because yeah. it's not just the vapor fly anymore. There are there are now competitor brands that are yeah. doing similar things. I think Hoka so, and New Balance have bought out a shoe, haven't they? As, as far as we have heard. Yes, yeah. Arconi's got one, which yeah. was worn to fourth place in Doha, I believe, and yeah. was worn by some of those US men. So the marathon has now been recalibrated, where a person who is a 215 marathon runner will now run 212. A person who's a 206 can now run a 203. And a person who's a 202 to 203 can now run 159. Yeah, it's significant. So let's get into the sort of meat of this. And uh, we, we were going to speak to you. We, we did have a, a voice note from uh, Jeffrey Burns, who we'll introduce a bit later on about the mechanics of it. But we wanted to kind of just praise it a little bit. But we'll get Jeffrey on a bit later with some of his, his insights into the shoe. But Ross, just take us through the technology of the shoe. Of course, everybody's talking about the, the, the carbon footplate, and that's the big deciding, and that's the reason why it happens. But it's much more than that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and I mean, I mentioned a little earlier this patent, uh, which includes what, in their own words, they describe as a spring plate. Now, apparently this patent never saw a shoe produced off of it. 
it's not immediately clear to me how this carbon fiber plate is 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 it not is a spring, whereas the one in the vapor fly is not. So it's not worth worrying about that yet. But the point is that this concept of a shoe with carbon fiber is not a new one, and it had obviously been on people's minds for a long time. And if you go back to the early 2000s, shoes were already being made with a spring plate in them, but they didn't work because what was happening was the, the carbon fiber plate was obviously making the shoe extremely stiff. And the benefit of that is that you didn't flex at the big toe. So there was less energy loss at what's called the MTP joint. Think of it as the, as the big toe, right? Yeah. So that was, that was rumored or thought at that point to be why a carbon fiber plate would be beneficial. The problem was that the stiffness of the plate increased the work at the ankle. And so what you gained in X, you lost in Y. Yeah. And so in the end, these carbon fiber shoes didn't really last very long. What has changed has been the ability to curve that plate. And there was recently a conference uh, in North America where Nike funded scientists presented their studies using different curvatures. So they used a flat plate, a mildly curved plate, or an extremely curved carbon fiber plate. And when you have a large curvature on that plate, what happens is the the energy saving still exists at the big toe, yeah. but the energy, the, the increased requirement at the ankle disappears. So now you only benefit and you don't lose. But that's only part of the picture. And the the other part of it, which their mechanical testing has shown, is that the the material that's used in the midsole offers greater energy return than any material ever used in shoes before. So most listeners would be familiar with EVA, which is what running shoes have had for for decades. And then Adidas came up with their new technology, which was that boost material, uh, which was TPU in about 2008-9, which that's the one I was talking about earlier when I said they said it gave 1% more energy Mm -hmm. return. This PBAX is now the next iteration of that. And one of the early studies that was published out of Colorado looked at the, at the material and exactly how it worked and, and, its chem, and its mechanical properties. And basically, EVA returns mid-60% energy. So about 65% of what you put into that material gets bounced back to you, basically. Um, TPU is in the mid-70s and PBAX is in the high 80s. And so that's a big part of the shoe's advantage is that this midsole material just, it's really squishy, so it compresses a lot. And then when you release the load, it springs back. So I've seen articles describing it as squishy and springy. Yeah. And from what I've read, also light compared to classic TPU and EVA. Exactly. And that's, that's extremely important. So it's got very low density, mm. which means that you can package more of it in a large volume without adding mass. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you so can I'm get paraphrasing a little bit from what Jeff has shared with us, and we'll play in some more of Jeff's words in a moment. But basically, because it's so, such a low density, it allowed Nike to build up the thickness of that midsole in order to put the plate there. Now, the reason the, the reason the plate is there is to provide stability because you can imagine a really soft material that's really squishy, and if you built it up to a thickness of, say, four centimeters, 
that's probably not what you want to be running on, no matter how light it is, because it's actually too soft. Yeah. And yeah. so the carbon fiber plate gives it a st stability, but the, the lightness of that foam gives you the space, almost it gives you the scaffolding to put that carbon fiber plate into it. So the two, the two really work together in a synergy, the carbon fiber plate and the foam, but the, the testing results seem to suggest that the energy return is coming from this foam and that the carbon fiber plate adds a degree of stability or a structural integrity or geometry or whatever you want to call it ah. to how the shoe actually works. So it's not, it's not the carbon fiber plate that's actually doing the propulsion part of this. It's, it's as you just said, it's the, it's the foam rather than the plate. Because I always thought looking at it, it was the fiber plate that was kind of bounding off like a, some, some sort of spring, but it's actually the, the special foam they're using. Yeah, you've got in your mind almost like the image of a, of a pogo stick. Yeah. Um, or, or the image of, of, a, of an Oscar Pistorius running on a curved yeah. blade that compresses and releases. And, and again, I, I come back to this patent, which is not apparently, they tell us, for this shoe, but the, but the language they use is what you're thinking of. And, and I think I, I certainly did at the time, um, perhaps sensitized by the Pistorius case. But, but they, they literally talk about you compress this thing as you land and then it rebounds like a spring and that's what propels you forward and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, so it's, and, and, and this is, I think quite an important concept is that, um, a spring doesn't necessarily have to propel you forward in order to act in some spring way. So your Achilles tendons are springs, the arch of your foot is a spring. Um, and they store energy and then release some of that energy. So it, it, it really goes towards how much resilience or restitution there is when you load something and they let it rebound. Yeah. And the point here is that that PBAX foam does that better than any other material ever used. And the carbon fiber plate enables it by providing a degree of stability and might, might contribute a small amount towards energy recovery because of its stiffness and and spring-like properties. But most of it seems to be in the phone. Yeah. Well, we did have a chat and we have mentioned him a couple of times. We spoke to Jeff Burns and Jeff, uh, not just a, a biomechanist, but also a man who's done very well in ultra distance running, the US uh, 50K and 100K champion a couple of years ago. So very handy runner himself. But he, at the moment, he's uh, studying a PhD in running mechanics at the University of Michigan. And he's done a lot of studies. And Ross, you've interacted with him a bit. He's become a bit of a, a specialist in on this particular shoe because he's been talking about it quite a lot on his, on his own social media. Yeah, I guess as someone who's an elite runner, um, the prospect of a shoe that can improve performance by two to four percent makes a lot of sense to explore. So he's done a lot of thinking on this. And about a week ago, he published with a guy called Dr. Nicholas Tam, who actually was a PhD student of mine. We studied barefoot running together. Yep. Uh, they published a piece um, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine called Is It the Shoes? A Proposal to Regulate Footwear in Road Running. And then I corresponded a little bit with him uh, after that and asked him if he would be willing to share some thoughts for the podcast, and he very kindly did. So we put a whole bunch of questions to him, and then he explained to us through his biomechanics expertise exactly what was going on here. Okay, so the first question we asked him was what the difference was between this particular shoe, this Nike Vaporfly, and other shoes. So biomechanical differences 
in wearing the shoe versus other shoes? This is kind of a tricky question. Um, it's, I would say first off, like with almost, this is, this is like a go-to answer for a biomechanist. It depends or it's highly individualized. So yes. So the shoe, the main thing with the shoe is that it reduces your cost of transport, your running economy. And you could, if you told me that a shoe did this, I would, I would say you could actually form several different hypotheses. One is that, and this is what they saw in the first study in the Colorado study, that it doesn't change your mechanics at all. It just makes them less costly. So at a given pace, there are no mechanical changes. It just takes less energy to do those same mechanics. Then one of the other studies, I think it was um, Ian Hunter's uh, lab at BYU, they found a slightly longer stride length, which that, again, I think you could think of this in terms of like some people might adapt to the shoe differently because it's a very strange thing to put on your foot compared to other shoes in terms of having this you know, strange geometry of the plate going through this very, this foam that's very different than the other foam. So people have, I think, just different responses to mechanics. Um, so you could say there's one line, one type of person who might not change at all wearing the shoe. It just costs less. But then there's other people that might adapt differently to this shoe and maybe take longer strides, have higher vertical oscillation. That was one of the things they saw, this idea that maybe you can store and return more vertical energy like that. Um, so for different types of people, it can change differently. And one of the things that hasn't been studied with it that I think would be really interesting is is if there's a learning effect to it. Because like I said, it's very strange. You put it on once. You know, if you do several, you know, if you start training it and go through several, you know, long workouts or like marathon specific workouts, I would have the hypothesis that you would learn to use that technology a little bit differently. And so thereby training with it, you might be able to capture a greater benefit um, or kind of optimize your own mechanics to it. So I think that's, that's something that hasn't been explored, but would be really interesting. But as to the, the kinematic and kinetic changes, there aren't really any clear there's no clear force differences in the ground the, the one clear trend is that it just reduces the cost of your movements and so the other thing that you could then think about on the flip side is if you then and this is this relates more specifically to marathon racing all the stuff we've seen is on a treadmill where they set the same pace and have you run in the shoe versus other shoes and again some of the studies have shown no changes some you know slightly longer stride lengths um but now if we thought about going outside and running the at the same oxygen cost, the same energy cost, but then obviously it'll be slightly different speeds, then the mechanics will change. And that's where I would be very interested to see that is, is some overground studies. And that's, that's what we see play out on the marathon is now these guys are running at the same energy cost that they normally would. They're just running faster. And so that's where you would see biomechanical differences. And this is one of the really fascinating things about the shoe is it's what struck me when it first came out. And one of my training partners um, started running in it and just watching. He had, I would say, distinct mechanical changes. Just watching him is is had, I would say, smoother. Like you looked smoother through the gait cycle, had a slightly I would say like a slightly higher back kick. 
Um, it, it looked like a more fluid stride. And I think you see that play out too. in, in even professional runners is it, it looks like it almost has a correcting effect on some people's mechanics, which is fascinating. And that probably gets to the carbon fiber plate guiding them through, um, the stride cycle. One of the interesting mechanical, there are actually, I would say a couple interesting mechanical features of the shoe that we saw in studies, um, that, that surprised me that don't get talked about a lot. The first one was from the first Colorado study. They, they admitted that the, the doing a subgroup analysis was probably, they're underpowered to do that, but they did notice a difference within the runners that they had between forefoot and rear foot strikers and that the rear foot strikers, which are the majority of runners, maybe not the majority of absolute elite runners. Um, well, no, actually the majority of elite marathon runners tend to be rear foot strikers. Um, rear foot strikers gain more of a benefit. So their economical benefit pushed 5%, whereas the forefoot strikers pushed closer to 3%. That, that was a really fascinating thing that speaks to advantage there. The second one that, I, that really jumped out to me was, and this actually seems to almost contradict that first one, but in uh, Hunter's study at BYU, they found uh, a really strong, sharp, negative correlation with ground contact time and the running economy benefit so that the runners who had shorter ground contact times at the given speed that they were running at, I think they were four and a half meters per second, um, the runners with the shorter ground contact time had more of a benefit. Um, so the ones that had a really long contact time, like 25 hundredths of a second, were the ones that were floating around almost no benefit in the shoes, but the ones that were pushing like 15 hundredths of a second, like very short, were pushing six, 7%, um, which I thought was fascinating. And your, one of the studies that you guys did at Cape Town um, on Kenyans versus recreational runners is at a constrained pace, the Kenyan runners had shorter ground contact times and uh, you know, explained their running economy superiority. And so that struck me as, as a really interesting finding. And it makes sense, I would say, with the carbon fiber plate and maybe has to do with the scoop of that plate in that these runners that are forefoot striking derive more of a benefit from – or not forefoot – I'm sorry, not forefoot striking um, – that are striking the ground really quickly. So it could be midfoot or it could be heel striking. There are some very, very efficient heel strikers. Um, so the people who had those sharp, quick, efficient – um, strikes on the ground had the most benefit from the shoe. And that, you know, I would say is, is characteristic of the East African dominance and may contribute to their, their maybe even augmented benefit from the shoe, which is fascinating in itself. Um, I asked, actually asked in that, that presentation at, um, the American Society of Biomechanics conference, asked Emily Farina, um, when she was talking about the, the scoop of the plate there, if it had any difference between forefoot and rear foot strikers. And I think the study, she said that data that they presented, I think there were only five people in the, the study. She said they couldn't really comment on it, but she didn't think it would be any different. But, um, but I think it definitely, that contact time in the BYU study was a very interesting finding on that front on the, and on that kinematic side or kinetic side, kinematic side. 
So that was uh, Jeff Burns, and uh, I mean, he talks a lot of a lot of stuff there. What's interesting, he's talking about this ground contact time. So he's alluding to the fact that the shoe is more beneficial for runners that are running quicker. And what's nice, actually, he talks about the fact that you don't have to be a four foot striker to be a to be a good runner. Is is that true? Yeah. So ground contact time, remember, is um, it's literally what it sounds like. It's how long does your foot spend on the ground? And that's not necessarily a function of how fast you're running. So you can have two people running the same speed and one of them's got a long ground contact time and the other one's got a very short ground contact time. And, and he alluded there to a study we'd done where we, we looked at Kenyan runners and non-Kenyan runners at the same speed and their ground contact times were shorter. So that's, why would that make a difference to the economy benefit that you get in a shoe? I suspect it's because with a spring, you want to get that energy as quickly as possible. You know, you don't want to load up slowly. It's like a golf ball bouncing off a wall. It's not going to spend a long time in contact with the wall. The impact will be, it'll make contact and then bounce straight away. And in human physiology, there's something called a stretch shortening cycle, which is where your tendons lengthen on impact during the what's called the eccentric phase of the muscle contraction. And then when the muscle contracts, there's a you, you get a return on that energy. And the quicker that happens, the more energy return you get. So I suspect that it's working in a similar way to that. I would have hypothesized that the lower the ground contact time, the greater the energy return and therefore the greater the benefit. So that is true. The rear foot striking thing is really interesting to me. It is true that most uh, elite distance runners are rear foot strikers, despite what you might always see about how you must land on the forefoot. That was, that was marketing. <laughs> and what's interesting about this is that if the benefit comes to certain runners and not others, then it forces us to ask questions about whether it should be allowed. We're back in that philosophical region. And, you know, when, when swimming was faced with this issue in 2008, 2009, because of the swimsuits, one of the things they looked at as critical to actually banning the shoe was the finding that, or the fact that this, those swimsuits gave certain swimmers a bigger advantage compared to others. So you could have two athletes exactly the same and one would get a benefit of say 4% and the other one 1%. It seems like that could be happening with this shoe. And so two athletes, both capable of let's say two hours and six minutes might run against one another in the same shoe and one of them will run 202 and the other one will run 205. And there are questions around that, in my opinion. And then he talks a bit about that. I think it's a good description of talking about where this carbon plate, this carbon plate sits. It's called a, it's a scoop. So it's it's not essentially a flat piece of carbon, from what I understand. It's more of a, it's almost like a, a spoon rather than a than a flat piece of carbon. Yeah, exactly. So if you can, I mean, people can search for this, but you can see it in profile. It's it's shaped like a sort of, uh, call it a soup ladle, but it's it's it sort of dips down and then flattens off. And, and, and the point of doing that, as I alluded to earlier on, is um, the flat bit at the front protects that MTP joint under the big toe so you don't lose that energy. And then the curvature then helps at the ankle so that you don't find the ankle having to do more work. A flat plate gives you the toe benefit, but it increases the cost of the ankle. So they have been playing around with the curve. And I think actually, you know, when you look at the shoe that Kipchoge wore recently, it's I think 51 millimeters is the thickness. The first iteration of the shoe was in the mid thirties. 
I think they're adding size to it so that they can curve the plate more. So one of the interesting things that uh, I think a lot of people are asking is when you've got all this performance benefit, how much does this affect the biomechanics of the athletes and is it going to be an injury risk? So we asked Jeff what his experience was in terms of uh, whether the shoe presented an injury risk or not. What made me very nervous when the shoe came out as coming from a biomechanics perspective is most shoes we've we've worn are generally foam. Sometimes they have different you know densities of foam in there to do whether it's quote unquote pronation control, which is it's a whole other discussion on itself. But in general, they're pretty. I would call them uh, from a mechanical perspective isotropic in that no matter how you load the material, what direction it behaves the same. Whereas when you now have this carbon fiber plane shooting through it, you now have a highly anisotropic material underneath your foot, which means that it has different material properties depending on the direction that it's loaded. So it makes me very nervous for potential for being potent, potentially injury risk. I, I have this, I would say, kind of governing theory that you can't game Mother Nature. So if we're taking forces and energy on our feet and moving them around to different structures you know, the human body is is evolved over a very very long time scale to be a pretty sweet setup pretty pretty efficient for all of its intricate structures that work together it's very efficient for what it is and i think there are these things that we can do that make it very beneficial in the short term but it makes you wonder what the long-term implication of that is. You know, you see it with pharmaceuticals. Take, take a guy, for example, who takes synthetic testosterone early in his athletic career for many years and then requires uh, testosterone replacement therapy later in life and has all sorts of heart conditions because he can't normally, you know, produce it. Um, I don't know where I've heard of that. It seems, I don't know. Seems seems to sound familiar. Um, anyways. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Same thing. I, I fear, maybe it's just paranoia, but I'm afraid that manipulating the human structure like that with the ground might have negative implications. And we don't have any studies on that yet, so I can't, I can't say that firmly. But you look at, on the American side, I look at the top Nike programs and their marathoners that have used these shoes prodigiously since they came out, even in prototype form. You look at like, you know, Shalane Flanagan and Galen Rupp have both had serious surgeries since wearing them. Jordan Hasse and Amy Craig have, have been perpetually injured over the last couple of years, and, but they've also had their best performances ever. So it's like this sword that might come with this, you know, ah, uh, this blowback, um, which makes me nervous. And I think that's, that's a whole nother biomechanical can of worms that needs to be opened with, with the shoe. Um, but also speaks to, you know, maybe potential, potential need to regulate, but you know, that's, that's another discussion as well. 
So there's Jeff talking a little bit about uh, some of the risks in using the shoe. I mean, the evidence is not absolute about that, but it seems to be circumstantial that, you know, the athletes he's talking about who were using the shoe potentially have been injured because of it. But it's, I suppose it's a risk and reward situation in many respects, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think the evidence will ever really be clear on that because if you think about the study you would need, you'd have to have called 100 runners who get a fake version of the shoe, maybe with plastic or no carbon fiber plates, and 100 who get the real one. And then you would have to make sure they're matched for experience and mass and age and mechanics. And then you'd have to expose them to training and it has to be the same and, and, and. So you can imagine the study that would have to be done to properly answer that would be very complex. But he raises, I think, very interesting points. And I suspect that the next wave of studies that come out on the shoe will be looking at things like this. There was a there was a paper presented at that conference that Jeff mentioned where they documented runners' perceived soreness and the shoe performs pretty well there. So the guys were doing marathon training and they were asked to rate how stiff and sore they felt and those soreness scores went down as a result of using the shoe, which makes sense if you understand that you're running on this incredibly squishy foam and it might also change your biomechanics in a way that has some protective benefits but again there's always a cost you know the 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 best way that i can think to visualize physiology is like a spider spider's web you know one of those sort of hexagonal ones that you always see in in horror movies at halloween and if you pull on one thread on the bottom left something moves on the top right that's how physiology works and I'm, I'm with Jeff on this. I think that there might well be some negative consequences to to changing the way that we run and to unloading maybe the the, the big toe, the arch of the foot. And just on that, there's a there's a website called The Balanced Runner, which I really enjoy. And it's run by a woman I met many years ago in England called Jay Grunke. I think I've said her name right. Apologies, Jay, if I didn't. And she basically analyzes the form of runners. And Listeners, do yourselves a favor. Go look up her analysis of the Chicago Marathon 2019 and Bridget Koskai. And she writes in it, and I bring it up, you'll see why now. She says, <laughs> I hate those shoes. They shut off an important part of the body's spring mechanism, namely the arch and big toe, and substitute a rigid plate that rocks a runner forward off the tip of her toes. In my experience, you can't shut off a key part of how the body works in running without paying a price. It won't happen right away, and the effects will probably vary somewhat from person to person, but the reckoning will come. And so she's very much of the same school of thought as Jeff, and it will be interesting to see whether overuse of these shoes causes injuries. Now, on that note, if a cyclist only ever uses their time trial bike, they're going to get back problems. So it might be that you can avoid this by training in one shoe and racing in this one, but there may well be consequences we don't yet see. Yeah. So we've gone through the sort of injury risk and, and some of the sort of tech behind the shoe, but one of the key things about the shoe, and I think for those of you that watched the Kipchoge um, sub two attempt, well, not attempt success, um, was that one thing that is almost visually 
palpable is the the leg length that the runners are seeming to get like at one stage one of the runners who was following Kipchoge almost his legs were almost coming up you know towards the back of his back in some respects so we asked Jeff a little bit about the leg length and what the difference is with the shoe particularly with the leg length and maybe Ross you can just kind of intro that a little bit and and talk a little bit about why that is why that is such a contributing factor towards the speed of the runner yeah, I just wanted to add before we hear from Jeff, because he's the expert, you'll hear actually his PhD thesis is a little bit on this. Part of the controversy around Oscar Pistorius and those carbon fiber blades is that you could make them longer. Yeah. And you say, well, what's the big deal about having longer legs? Well, Jeff's about to explain that to you now. But I, I didn't realize this. And, you know, until I saw Jeff writing about this, I hadn't made the connection either. And I think he... He talks about this from a position of authority, obviously, but it's also novel because I think he's touched on one of the key reasons why this shoe does give a benefit because it actually adds two to three centimeters to the runner's leg without adding mass. And I think it's best heard in his voice. So, yeah, effective leg length. Um, this was one that I was one of the things that first struck me about the shoe when I, when I, when I first saw it was, was that thicker stack height. And what I was getting at in the BJSM piece calling for the regulation was this, this idea that this shoe effectively extends that leg length of a runner, the biological leg, um, by that much more than, you know, any shoe does in its own. Um, but this does it more so than the other shoes. So this idea of, um, you know, you can think of your leg length as both your biological leg, but also when we think of running as a, you know, a runner as a system, and this is actually what um, my dissertation work focuses on, we ha you can think of the effective leg length is, is simply the lever from your center of mass to the ground. And that is approximated by that distance to your biological leg. But what this shoe does is because it's the same length, it's the same mass, it's the same mass as other racing flats, it extends that lever arm, that effective leg of your body while maintaining the same mass. And this is actually a pretty fascinating concept that we don't have really any studies because as I was writing this BJSM piece, I was like, well, what's, what's the energetic savings of having, of having a longer leg? And we've seen studies in humans looking at it across us and it's very noisy and there's no trends, but that comes with all sorts of confounding factors where we don't have any studies that say, if you look at within a person, what happens if you manipulate their leg length? Because I mean, how do you do that? Um, aside from wearing shoes and if you wear stilts, they're not probably not going to be geometrically optimized to do that. So we don't really have any good human studies showing what happens if you manipulate leg length while maintaining the important things while maintaining mass. So, I mean, these shoes actually open up a fast. I would say this is probably one of the first st studies that show what happens when you do that. So I went and looked at comparative physiology to understand what was going on here. So if we look at across the animal kingdom animal and control for body mass, what it looks like, leg length, effective leg length is inversely related to your cost of transport. So your cost of transport is another way of seeing your running economy. So animals with shorter and shorter and shorter effective leg lengths have higher and higher and higher mass specific costs of transport. So to put that in context, look at like a human might have a typical cost of transport value of we'll say 2.3 joules per kilogram per meter. So it's the units we use there. 
So if we go down to like a dog and uh, our effective leg length might say 95 centimeters, okay? Go down to a dog would be about 39 centimeters effective leg length. Their cost of transport is 5.6 joules per kilogram per meter. Now, interestingly, you look at an ostrich, which is similar dimensions to a human, but its effective leg length is 119 and it drops from 119 centimeters. It drops down to 2.2 joules per kilogram. An emu, similar structure to an ostrich, but much smaller, has an effective leg length of only 80 and it's now 3.5. So you see this trend as you go and you go all the way up to an elephant, 168, huge legs. And its cost of transport is actually only 1.8 joules per kilogram uh, per meter. So we see this trend across this. So I used that interspecies data to estimate that, let's say, one and a half centimeter benefit from the vapor fly, thinking not at all about the energetic benefit that it provides um, with you know being more energy efficient, returning more energy, just that uh, maintaining mass but extending the leg length could account for probably about forty percent of its savings if it's if it's um, one and a half centimeters, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. And then if we factor in the fact that it's not a biological extension of the leg, it's a non-biological extension of the leg. Um, then that's where the further energetic savings come. So that's what the shoe, you know, any shoe is doing is, is thereby extending the leg. And so a really, really component or important thing to understand here is that second idea of we're not just extending the effective leg length of the biological leg. We're doing so with a non-biological element. And this is, this gets into that very hairy subject of, you know, like, carbon fiber prostheses and blades. Um, Cause what that is, is that's adding a non-biological element, a near perfect, near perfectly elastic element to our imperfect, imperfectly elastic human system. Um, and so this is, you know, one of the things that I, I hear all the time that really frustrates me with this topic is, well, the shoes don't create any energy and they don't, you know, they don't do any of that. You still have to do the running. You still have to create the speed. Well, yes, you do, but the shoes, the shoes store and return that energy with no energy cost, right? So our legs have elastic, our legs and our bodies function as springs. And we, you can think of a very simple, at a very simple level, think of your Achilles tendon. That stores and returns energy, but it requires energy to operate as a spring. It requires your calf muscles, your gastroc and your soleus to maintain that spring tension, whereas the shoe underneath your foot does it better and carries no energy cost. So you now have no cost to maintain that elasticity. And that's a really important concept here. So you have an infatigable elastic element on your body and it functions more efficiently than your body could otherwise. So if, like I said, the human arch is estimated to function at about 70% efficiency um, in terms of energy return, we can think of the shoe does that better. So there's this idea that, yes, it doesn't, it can't, obviously cannot create energy, but it can give you back 
more energy than you would have otherwise gotten. So it, um, yeah, so it, it doesn't create energy, but it gives you back more. Um, or it allows you to store and return more at, you know, a higher speed or something like that. Um, so it's kind of like having, you know, lower interest rates or something like that on, on a loan you take out, you know? Yeah, so that's kind of the nub of this discussion. I mean, other than understanding the leg length of an emu, <laughs> there's there's a lot of stuff in there. Well, and I think that the thing that key, the key part for me is that returns energy with no without energy cost. And that really is yeah. the nub of this whole discussion, isn't it? Yeah, I love that we uh, we asked about shoes. And next thing we discovered that elephants are among <laughs> the most efficient animals in the world because they have the longest legs. I think that's so cool. Um, <laughs> one of the most fascinating areas i've got a friend who studies muscles and we must get him on this podcast at some stage to tell us how usain bolt's muscles compared to say a, a lion's or a cheetah's <laughs> anyway um yeah i think fascinating and I, I think i think he started on the leg length issue and it's quite clear to me that the additional two to three centimeters that this shoe gives you by virtue of that stack height might be a contributor to the low energy cost that we've already discussed and what that means for performance. But then he went on to discuss how it's, it's, it's a contribution without a cost. And I think that's really important because he's right. It frustrates me as well. What he said about how it annoys him that, <laughs> that people say, Oh, you know, you still have to do the work. Well, no, in this instance, you don't, it's, it's yeah. passive. It's effectively free energy. It's, it's less than a hundred percent, but it's still free, and it's and it's a it's better than the natural system. So I think that point was strongly made there. I think I mean I've had this discussion with people, you know, runners in the last couple of weeks when since this has all gone down, and it's a very difficult concept to understand that the shoe gives you free energy back because we automatically think that to get propulsion forward, you need to put something into that propulsion. There's a spring effect to everything. Spring effect essentially requires force. And I'd just like to, to kind of explain in a little bit more detail when you mean that there is that you're getting free energy. In other words, how is the propulsion happening if there's no push down on the spring? How is it going forward if you haven't got the pressure down on it? Well, of course, there is push down, but it's it's caused by gravity acting on your body. Okay. So if I jump off a table, um, I have potential energy at the top and I turn that into movement. <laughs> But gravity is the force that's being exerted. So in the case of this PBAX carbon fiber plate system or synergistic system, the the energy is being stored as the cushion is deformed, right? That's how they test it as well. They load it up and then they let it recoil or, or rebound. or So it's deformed and then it returns to normal. That's happening purely as a consequence of landing because of gravity. What's happening in the body is different because when we land, our muscles have to contract in order to store energy in our tendons. And yeah. that muscle contraction comes at a price. And so we actually have to do work to load it up. So now it's a little bit like having to stretch a piece of elastic. It takes work before that thing can actually be shot, you know, whereas yeah. the other one just has to be dropped. So that's the that's the key difference is, yes, of course, something has to be done on it. It's not as though it creates its own energy, but... Um, it, the energy return that you get comes with no spending. It's basically, I mean, he used at the end, it's like saying that the loan that you pay is smaller. 
I would say it's almost like you're being given an interest-free loan. Yeah. So one of the things he talks about, and we've alluded to a bit at the start of this tech, and we've got Jeff's sort of insight into this, is how all this stuff works together. So it isn't just the one component of the shoe that's kind of part of this technology. It's about all these things working together. So let's just uh, hear what Jeff has to say, and then I'm going to ask Ross to you for you to comment a bit on that. Yeah, so the shoe has all of these components acting together, not just acting together, interacting together dynamically. And I think, yeah, I've referred to it as, as an ecosystem. They act in concert together. They're kind of like an orchestra, all the violins, violas, cellos, basses playing with each other, the plate, the foam. Um, it's one of those things where these things uh, are not necessarily possible without the others. So I guess to go to another analogy, think of a river. You have all of the insects around it and the fish eat the insects to sustain themselves. Fish swim in the water and the fish die and they, you know, their bodies support the nutrients in the soil for the trees to grow and the trees stabilize the river, which the river then gives life to the insects who live there. And then the fish, you know, this, all of these things, if you take one out, it disrupts it all and messes it up. Just like that, all of these components in the shoe interact together where going back, to talking about those different mechanical concepts, you know, the, the foam, we can add, we can extend the leg length of the runner because the foam is less dense and, and um, has, uh, you know, is lighter weight. So we can extend the leg length doing that. But perhaps when we make that extension, that foam, because it's so compliant, it doesn't have the stiffness of the other foam, it needs the plate to go through it. So the plate goes through it, and now we have, have this structure. Now the plate's going through it because it's a higher stack. We have more real estate in which we can curve it. And so as you open these things up, each of these components, if you took one away, they wouldn't work as well. So if you had just EVA foam with a plate, yeah, it'll confer a slight benefit. Um, but you can – eke out more benefit from the plate by having that curvature. And by having that curvature, you need the thicker stack height, right? But you can't get a thicker stack height with EVA because not only is it not very energy efficient, it would give you a huge weight penalty. It would cost you a lot to carry it, which is why, you know, you think of like maximalist shoes that are really thick EVA. They're really good for training and, and save your legs at, at slower paces or something, but nobody's going to go try and run three minutes a K in, you know, a, shoe with 40 millimeters of EVA foam. Um, likewise, you couldn't, you could put a plate through to stiffen it up and maybe make it a little more responsive, but it wouldn't be beneficial. Um, so all of these things are only, their benefits are only afforded by the others, which makes regulating any one of those very, very tricky. Um, and so I think in order to do the regulation, you really have to take a more holistic approach. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the the sort of summary of how it all works together. And I think, I mean, you have to take your hat off to, to Nike for the way they've done this shoe because it isn't just about inserting a carbon plate or increasing the cushioning or the or the foam. It's it's it literally is just a redesign of a shoe and making it work all together. And it really is a little bit of genius in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's for sure it's a tech breakthrough that many companies were looking for. We spoke, let's go back 15, 20 years. People were saying, let's get a carbon fiber plate in a shoe because there was stiffness reasons. There were mechanical reasons why this would help. Um, but 
but they couldn't get it right. Yeah. And the thing that enabled it was this PBAX foam, which had low enough density and thus mass that you could build it up and curve the plate and you could get X plus Y plus the foam return. So they they certainly can't be accused of uh, being limited in their thinking. That's, so that was, that was the big breakthrough. And I, I 100% agree with Jeff on everything that he said there, except the irony for me is that the the ecosystem, the synergistic relationship between this, the, the plate, its shape, the thickness, the foam, that actually makes regulation easier. So he spoke about holistic regulation. If he's right, and I believe that he is, I think the regulation can actually be reductionist. And, and ironically, not wanting to put words in his mouth, so does he. Yeah. Because the very next question we put to him is, what would he do about all this? How would he regulate it? And you'll hear that his answer actually boils down to changing one simple thing. And the only reason it works to change one simple thing is because all these things are interconnected. If, if they weren't, you'd have to change four things. But because they are, you can fix a complex problem with a simple solution. So yes, my proposal to regulate it, um, mine and, and Nick's, this, this piece we published in BJSM, is just to look at the shoe as that, as a system that's all these things are working together and just regulate the thickness, the midsole thickness. And the goal with that, I would say there, there was a couple of reasons for approaching it that way. One, it makes no assumptions about technology that has come or will come. It merely defines the space on a runner, on an athlete that is a shoe. It's this geometric constraint that says this is where a shoe on an athlete can be. And it, if it's 36 millimeters, what the vapor fly is, 36 millimeters. So it's 30 or 25, like old racing flies, 25. It can only extend that much below the foot. And so that way you have this idea that creates this area beneath the foot that you can put whatever you want and innovate within that space um, and have the best possible piece of footwear just within that. Because otherwise, I fear what you're going to have happen, and you're seeing this with – saw it happen in the next percent. Um, and interestingly, this was, this was something that I first – thought when they first came out with the shoe and I first saw how thick it was, I thought this is, this is what they need to do. Cause otherwise you're just going to have essentially a space on which the foot extends, extends, extends. And you have these rigid, you know, carbon fiber, essentially blades extending through the bottom of the shoe. It's just going to get thicker and thicker and thicker. That was a couple of years ago. So finally last year is getting so fed up with it that, uh, we wrote this editorial, um, and it's taken now almost a year to actually get it published. So this came out before the next percent. Next percent came out, it was even thicker. And then these ones that Kipchoge has, you're hearing anybody, you know, people saying they're anywhere from, you know, 42 to 45 to 51 millimeters of stack height. And it's the same thing where it's just getting thicker and thicker. So my thought is just limit the space on a shoe and then innovate within that. And it's, it creates a very transparent standard. Um, and it a lot, it doesn't attempt to regulate anything that's within that. And this is what the IAAF actually did, um, almost, let's see, over 60 years ago now, Yuri Stepanov, uh, set the high jump world record. He and 
to the other USSR high jump high jumpers at the time in the mid fifties were building up their shoes and in, in the um, to get thicker and thicker, obviously to give them an advantage in the high jump. And they, I mean, some of them were jumping with shoes that had five centimeters sole thick, um, almost good enough to run a hundred one fifty nine uh, marathon distance run. Anyways, um, they built uh, built up these shoes and. They were, he, I think he set the high jump world record with ones that were like 25 millimeters or something like that. And so the IAAF jumped in and regulated at, capped it at 19 millimeters. And that standard is still here today. So it, it really, it speaks to the other motivation to do this is a very generalized, um, standard that is future proof. That is, we can set that standard now and then just, innovate within that. And that I think is a nice compromise between what we have now, what's great for the industry, what's great for the athletes, um, and what's, you know, good for the sport because we can, we can't imagine what's, what's going to come, um, down the pike. Moreover, I, I, if, if there's a more efficient thing to put on my foot, I don't think we should stop that. Like I said, boost was a great innovation when it came along because it was more energy efficient. I would love to have foams in the future that are a hundred percent energy return you know, like obviously you can't have a hundred percent, 99.99999. That would be fantastic. And I, and I don't, it's my opinion at least that we shouldn't be there to stop that. Um, but I think we should cap it at something that's a reasonable shoe. And so I would say we could set a midsole height limit to define that and then innovate within it. And so then you get a couple different arguments. I think on the flip side, some people might make the argument um, you know, we should put a ban on anything inside the shoe, like a carbon fiber plate, ban all plates and have it be just foam. And I would, I would not do that for, I would say, let's say three reasons. One, I think it's really dangerous to have piecemeal bans and regulations. That is saying, I don't like the idea of saying, what's not allowed. I think we should define what's allowed rather than making new rules every time something comes out. And that, that's, that would be, it's problematic to do it, the, to, to have itemized, not allowed bans for several reasons. Um, and one is, one is, uh, this is kind of what I was getting at. First one is that it's, I think it's really dangerous precedent to set because it opens it opens your organization up and the rules to conflict of interest and bias. So let's say there was a company that came out with some new technology that was, you know, very beneficial or new addition to a shoe. You could set precedent now that it's okay to just ban something new. And I don't, I think that's really dangerous. So let's say a different company comes along in the future and, and creates some innovation if there is undue influence by another company in the governing body, um, you could think of there maybe being some bias to then ban it on this previous precedent that we do it. So that's kind of the, the legal side of it that would make me uncomfortable to have it. The other side is that, that notion of, of creating a rule that's future proof. I think it, it's, it's better to have a rule that says, here's the space in which you can exist, operate, not, not here's what's not allowed. Don't do that. And then when the next thing comes along, we have to have this, all of these arguments over and over again. So we just are perpetually 
litigating new developments in footwear. That's dangerous. The third is, or the, the next, the next point to it, um, is the operational side of making those rules. So you want to say, let's take carbon fiber plates, for example. You want to say, let's ban a carbon fiber plate. Okay. Are we banning full length carbon fiber plates? Okay. Anything full length. Okay. Well, can we have one that's 95% of the length? Not 95. Okay. What's the adequate length through the shoe? Because whatever definition and metric that you give it, you know, people are going to go right up to that. Moreover, most other shoes have different pieces on this. Okay. So we're going to ban carbon fiber plates up to 50% of the shoe. Well, what about, uh, you know, not carbon fiber? What about a different fiberglass plate? What about a very rigid plastic that has the same, almost the same mechanical properties of carbon fiber plate? Can we go all the way through that? So now it's any rigid piece through the shoe. Well, is it plastic? Is it carbon fiber? Is it, you know, something else? Is it foams of different densities? So you become, you start to pick apart each of these. Once you operationally try and define what you're banning, it becomes a really complex task. Moreover, all shoes are inevitably combinations of different materials. We have not just foam, but we have rubber. Rubber gives different material, you know, properties to the, you know, torsional and bending stiffness of the shoe. You know, any, a lot of flats have plastic pieces on the bottom to give them some rigidity there. Um, track spites obviously have carbon fiber plates. Are we going to say that you can't use these on, you know, on the track? So like, I think you start to have all sorts of different ways where it becomes very problematic to ban one thing. You did, you go down a deep rabbit hole of operational definitions, um, or technical definitions. And that gets to the final reason why I think it would be dangerous to do that is how do you possibly enforce that? So the midsole height recommendation, I think, is really great because if you really wanted to regulate it or do something, all that they need is a pair of calipers or a ruler to have, you know, to measure that thickness. Any official at any race could do it. You don't even need to be official. You could be a race director. Just map measure the maximum midsole thickness. It's a very external thing. If now if we're banning things inside a shoe, oh, boy, that is tricky business because – now you're thinking about like, okay, are we going to MRI shoes or do a CT scan on the shoe? So now, okay, a world marathon major could CT scan the top three shoes of the people who run it. You know, you're looking at thousands and thousands of dollars for one of those scans. But, you know, is say a gold label marathon, Cape Town marathon, is that going to do it on the top athletes? What about the, you know, Soweto Marathon, something like that. We start to look at places that would have to, the cost of, you know, a lot of, a lot of places struggle just to have doping control for the cost. If we now are asking them to do, you know, MRIs or CTs on shoes, that's crazy. Moreover, that doesn't even get to, you know, people who would be using the shoes to qualify, um, for races that will certainly not have regulations or anything like that. Um, so it becomes, operationally, it would be an absolute nightmare to enforce anything that is um, something that you would have to measure internally. I would hate to be, you know, you look at like the UCI doing their motor uh, things where they're like waving the iPad minis over the bikes to see it, which I don't even know if that can detect the presence of a motor, but you could never do anything like that in running. You know, it'd be tough to do it at the absolute top level, impossible to do it 
at all levels of the sport. And that's where it's competitive. You know, you think of even somebody trying to, whether it's qualify for comrades or qualify for the Boston marathon, something like that. Um, like you're looking at time cutoffs and we're not going to possibly be able to, you know, um, litigate what's inside a shoe for everybody. So it'd be really tricky to do that. So the midsole height is simple. And this gets back to, I think the last, the last benefit, um, been very circuitous here of that midsole height restriction is as you extend the thickness of the midsole, the benefit increases. I I mean, I would hypothesize it increases non-linearly from the standpoint that as it gets thicker and thicker, you create that bigger space on which you can create all of these crazy constructions like the midsole or the, the carbon fiber plate that slants through at an angle and scoops down and ekes out another half percent of a running economy benefit. Um, as you compress that space to operate in, you would put all sorts of things in there and they're not going to be that much more beneficial or maybe not even beneficial. Um, so, you know, if you, if you went down, if you had a very strict limit, like went down to 25 millimeters, like what racing flats were before the vapor fly, you can put whatever you want in that shoe. And I would say we probably would only have like maybe a one to maybe 2% improvement we could make in running economy with the, with the flats. And that would just be having maybe a better material with maybe a carbon fiber plate. Um, but then it would still be, I would say, lar- largely negligible. But as you extend that, you can get more and more and more and more benefit that increases exponentially. So if you restrict that space, I think a lot of these like flourish benefits, like I said, like the shape of the play, those things become kind of, um, I don't want to say moot points, but it really blunts the effect of them. So it, it creates, I think, just a more rational, you know, space structure that would be the shoe and that's what that's what i think the end game should be is just having things be recognizable shoes the purpose of shoes and actually the iaaf defines this the purpose of footwear is to protect the feet and and that's what i would i would hope that they are and that they are just an accessory and that's kind of what was getting out with this well, a massive thanks to Jeff Burns for uh, being part of this podcast today. And a, a lot in that uh, sort of summary about the regulation of the shoe. But his end point there is that, yes, it, what shoes were meant for was to protect the feet. Now they're becoming performance enhancers and it's essentially aiding the running. Is the solution that he's suggesting there, Ross, something that you think is the solution for this? Because I know that you and I have spoken in previous podcasts about how, you know, you're never sure what you're watching when you when you look at the shoe, how much it is an advantage over the for the athlete. And, you know, it's it's kind of skewed performances now. But it feels like it's almost inevitable that the shoe is going to become the future and everybody else is going to play catch up along the way. Or is there a way to regulate it and take a step back? I think that the simplest and most immediate thing you can do is to just say, this is the stack height limit, exactly what Jeff has just explained, better than I could do. So just if you weren't clear, go back and listen again to exactly what he said. I don't know that it does the entire job, but it's definitely the simplest job. And I'm won over by that argument. I, I would, I'm, I'm one of those who would also advocate that you don't allow for additional devices that may act as springs to be incorporated into the shoe. But I would consider that his arguments there, those three points that he listed have almost won me over to to say, actually, 
that becomes practically very difficult. I mean, imagine having to collect the shoes of the top 10 at the Olympic marathon and put them through an x-ray to check that they don't have anything that might not be allowed. And then there's going to be all sorts of discussion about when does it become spring-like. So he's, he's not drunk. Yeah. So the thickness is the way to go. Yesterday, in fact, today, time zones got me, um, Sean Engel of The Guardian posted a piece in which he said that his sources have suggested that the IAAF are not going to act on these shoes. Um, there is a meeting. They've convened an expert group to investigate them, and apparently, this is he's saying very preliminary at this stage, they're not going to do anything, which means they're basically going to say anything goes. And if that is the case, then you're right. We just have to accept that this becomes the new normal. We have to recalibrate. And where before a 204 marathon was an outstanding world-class performance, it'll now be a 201. Like we said up, up front at the start of this podcast, 214 for women is now the world record, where before, other than Paula Radcliffe, and put your explanation down for where how she got that far ahead of everyone else, the best performance we'd ever see from a woman was 218-ish. Yeah. So, well, 217 to 218. So I I think we're headed for a new era. I mean, we've already arrived there. They've brought the sub two, not just into focus, but we've gone under it as a result. Um, and I wish that the leadership would be strong enough to take a stand. And it's a simple stand that Jeff has just outlined. It's a stand that's been taken before in high jump. So why not do it? I just, I wish that they would, because at the moment, I don't know what I'm watching. Yesterday, yeah. the Amsterdam Marathon was won but by a bloke in a pair of Adidas shoes in 205. That's a 203 if he's got a different pair of shoes on. So <laughs> that's, not, that's not legitimate competition, in my opinion, because he has to be that much better to win the race. So I think, I think from a performance perspective, you can ask it in a few different ways. One is, am I seeing a legitimate race right now? In other words, I've got 10 athletes. Am I seeing the athlete with the best physiology win? At the moment, you cannot say yes to that question because of the technology and how big a difference it makes, the yeah. big difference it makes. Then there's another question around from one generation to the next. You know, we celebrate Kipchoge because he's the best marathon runner in the world right now. But we're looking at this and saying, is he two minutes faster than the next best guys from three years ago, I don't know. I don't know how to compare him. And running is a sport where that comparison has a lot of meaning. No one's asking whether Kipchoge is better than the guy who won the 1960 Olympic marathon, Bikila. <laughs> that, that's irrelevant. We don't really care. But within a narrow frame from one generation to the next, the sport has a lot of meaning because we like to anchor and compare and calibrate performances. And this calibration is now gone. So I don't like where where it's gone. I don't like that it's gone to a place so quickly in such scale as to disrupt the integrity of performances. And I wish that they would just do something to regulate the tech moving forward. Yeah, Ross, I completely agree with you on that. I think it's a great way to end this podcast. If you want to share some of your uh, views on the podcast today, and of course, this is a very polarizing discussion around this particular issue and around the Ineos uh, 159 uh, concept as well. Don't forget to share us on our Twitter feed, which is Sports SciPod, uh, sports with an S on the end, and then Sci, S-C-I-P-O-D. And uh, let us know what you think about uh, this controversy and whether our solutions, and particularly Jeff's solutions around regulation of the shoe um, is maybe the solution. 
Uh, Professor Ross Tucker, thanks very much for joining us again today. Um, I know you've got a couple more weeks in Japan and uh, look forward to seeing you when you're back in South Africa for our next podcast. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.